Welcome to From the Hip with me, Benji Moody. From the Hip explores the world of South African music. The musicians, the explorers, innovators, creators, disruptors, icons and legends. In this edition, we chat with Tali McCulley, one of South Africa's premier music producers. He's also a hit songwriter, publisher, multi-talented musician, and more recently, the creator of the world-renowned Tull Microphones. We've known each other, I think, from the late 70s and journeyed together musically throughout the 80s. So for me, it's a great personal pleasure to host you on From the Hip and look back at your amazing career. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks, Benj. It's great to be here. You grew up in Cape Town, right? Yeah, I know. My childhood was fairly interesting, to say the least. Very unusual, but uh, depends how far back you want to go. <laughs> we don't want to go into any dark family secrets. When did you first start becoming aware of music? What was inspiring you? I think it was around 63, 64, you know, the Beatles were the first major influence. I mean, they really made a huge difference. And uh, my brother and I had had a kind of a band going together. I played guitar, he was playing drums, and we used to make a hell of a racket all around our house, which was kind of <laughs> like Disneyland because my parents were pretty bohemian. My dad was a broadcaster, my mom was a teacher, and they they were completely different to most people in that they, they didn't believe in massive discipline or corporal punishment. So we had free reign, you know, we could make a racket. We always had kids around everywhere from all the other places coming to play and cause mayhem and trouble. But uh, that's when we that's when my interest in music really started with that situation. So you kind of went through the, the gamut of, of forming bands, breaking up bands, rehearsing, yep. et cetera, et cetera, before you and Mike decided to form Macaulay Workshop. Yeah, there were several bands. At the age of 12, we had the Blue Beats. I was playing in the Blue Beats, and that was uh, quite interesting. We used to play down in Simonstown at the restroom, and we'd charge like one rand a entrance <laughs> fee and hire the hall for 10 bucks. Interesting story, actually. There was a naval base there, and you remember Johnny Congas? Johnny Congas yeah, and the, the G-Men, yeah. They were literally, I think most of his band were in the Navy at the time with him. And they came along to one of the gigs there, and we were playing as the Blue Beats. And I remember this guy with sort of glasses came up and said, do you mind if we play a set? And we said, no, you know, go ahead. We only discovered afterwards it was actually John Congress and the guys. But what was fascinating to me was that this guy had such dedication. When he was he got up on stage and he was playing, you know, Love Potion Number 9 and all those things, the crowd kind of loved it. But he lost his pick halfway through the the song and he just carried on strumming with his fingers and he literally bled all over my guitar just (laughs) blood coming out of his fingers i remember afterwards he sort of said oh i'm sorry i kind of bled a bit over your guitar i was cleaning away thinking that that's that's pretty powerful commitment to actually carry on playing though your fingers are bleeding so that was also an important lesson for me South Africa back then in the in the early sixties was awash with great players. A lot of a lot of yeah. great musicians. Oh, uh, completely. I mean the gig scene was so huge, you know, you had so many different uh bands playing because there was no TV, there was only radio and you know, stuff like that happened. It was was insane the amount of bands around. And we used to I mean, I literally played from the age of twelve till twenty three, twenty four. I played every Friday and Saturday night in some kind of a band or another. It was insane. Where did the formation of of the workshop fit into that? 
Well, let's start around 68. Um, I recorded a song with a band. We had Richard Heim, Glenn DeVosman. You remember Richard from Pendulum? Alan right. Fall was part of the band at that stage. And Mike, and we recorded a song called Why Can't It Rain? Which, yeah. uh, Number recorded, one record, yeah. Yeah, we recorded that in the garage uh, at the, the studio we had, which my dad had called McCulley Workshop. So we took the name McCulley Workshop. But my mom was great. Uh, she pushed the band everywhere. She got press photos and she said, we must go to Joburg and get a, re a release on this. So we literally drove to Joburg and she got a meeting with Art Heatley and Billy Forrest. They sort of looked at us like a bit of sconce. We sort of forced our way into the buildings. I remember it was in Gallo somewhere, Gallo building in one of the streets there and, and played this tape for them. And they sat and listened to the tape and then they – were a bit shocked for about five minutes and then Billy heard, do you mind if we're going to have a chat somewhere? And him and Art Heatley went out and we didn't know what was going on. We were kind of, oh, they hated it. And then they came back and said, we'd like to do an album and we'd like Billy to produce it. That was the first record, you know, and Billy came down to the studio down in Cape Town in the workshop, so to speak, and we worked on the rest of the album. Looking at the sun in the clear blue sky Shaking my head and wondering why You left with your head in the air And yet the weather's so great Why can't it rain? Somewhere around that time, or maybe it was a little bit later, you did the um, Jody Wayne record, which I was—I didn't that's know right. that. Yeah, that's um, what happened. There was that um, Jody was on a tour, and he came down, and he sort of somehow through Billy or somebody, he got hold of me, and he said, "Can I come and see your studio?" And uh, came round, and uh, the record company at the time was Teal, and they were making him do these very kind of namby-pamby kind of 16-year-old songs, you know, like Patches and stuff. And he was very unhappy because he kept saying, I'm a real singer. And they all would laugh mm. and say, yeah, yeah, Jody, you're not a real singer. Just just be a pop idol and do the crap that we're throwing at you. And and he wanted to do the song called The Wedding, and they said, no, you can't sing that. That's too difficult. They gave him a real hard time over the whole thing. So anyway, so he said, can he record a demo of the song The Wedding? He's got several ideas. So I said, sure. You know, I mean, we were completely flattered to have the guy because he was like a big star at the time. He recorded this, and Mike played the priest at the beginning going, do you take this woman to be a lawful wedded wife? And we had Alan van der Merwe playing this sort of church organ, and then suddenly Jody in this big voice, you by my side. We were all like quite stunned because he actually did have a really big voice. And he kept saying when I was playing it back, more echo, more echo. And at the time, you know, we had real crap echo units, like spring echo units. It just sounded terrible, but I just kind of threw as much echo as possible on this thing. 
And then he disappeared and we heard nothing. <clears throat> it was hilarious because like eight weeks later, it's suddenly on LM radio. And I said, oh, hey, there's a song we're calling the guys. There's a song. The story that went around it was, was hilarious because he went back and Graham Beggs was the producer at the time. And Graham Beggs took a listen and said, this is a pile of shit. We're not releasing this. Mm. And Jody, he fought with the guys and said, please put it out, please put it out. And it literally sold three gold discs. It was huge. The upshot of that was that, in fact, Graham left Teal and Jody became the new producer. And he went on to huge success with Barbara Ray and all sorts of people. Yeah, he was, he was definitely a talent. Just listening um, yesterday while I was preparing for this interview to the Ink album, which, which I call Ink, right? Yeah. That first album. Well, that was recorded in that home studio, right? Did you yeah. build that studio? It was a garage, just literally converted. And I had two Brunel quarter-inch machines, which were sort of semi-professional, which I'd managed to build up. And we, what we used to do is we'd record the backing on one machine, everybody playing the music, and then we'd overdub vocals, and that would be the mix, and that would be the master. The album, the album's got so many different, oh, we're listening to it again, I mean, so many different influences, and in, I mean, it's psychedelic, because it kind of coincides with the psychedelic era, kind of almost garagey, garagey, punk, punky kind of things, and sort of rhythm and blues. Alan Fall, from, who went on to play with Falling Mirror, uh, was the guitar player on that record, right? Yep. Yes, that's right, yeah. Alan he was an amazing, amazing yeah, guitar player. Amazing. I mean, I met him when he was like literally 17. He'd come in with another band and they'd done a uh, a blues record with a blues singer called Moaning. And he came in and he, he had this terrifying-looking amplifier that was like a couple of tubes and then an old torn speaker box. And we all thought, oh, my God, what is this going to be? And then he started playing, and literally we all just went, oh, my God, that is insane. With the success of Why Can't It Rain, I mean, that, that obviously ramped up the band's exposure, certainly on radio. And did that translate to live? I mean, w was that a working band? Absolutely. We got an offer from uh, the Cock Door in uh, Rhodesia at the time to go and play for three months. So we went up there, and that was that was an amazing situation. We'd never never been out of the country, and that was incredible. We played there, and there were bands like the Peanut Butter Conspiracy playing in the mm. club next door. Brian Mulder, uh, we used to go and listen. They were absolutely great. They learned a hell of a lot. It kicked off the the live thing. We got a lot more gigs live, and we were we were literally pretty popular just after that. And then between the Ink album and the next album in 71, which is Genesis, there seems to be this quantum leap in direction with a more kind of early Chicago, blood, sweat and tears, brassy, progressive rock kind of thing. What was happening with you musically at that time? Yeah, you know, we'd kind of joined forces with Ian Smith, who was an amazing trumpeter. And um, I'd also been exposed to a whole lot of progressive stuff like uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Yes, Jethro Tull, and that, as my brother had as well, Mike. And Mike was pretty much the leading, he was the leader of the band. You know, he was kind of very outgoing and very kind of pushy and got stuff done. And he he said, you know, we need to do this kind of stuff now. We want to get away from the... The sort of bubblegummy stuff that we were playing, and um, I much enjoyed that. I mean, that was that was really good to play that stuff. Unfortunately, the Genesis thing was a difficult uh, situation because we'd moved into in, in sort of 
concert with another guy who'd built a mixing desk called Cameo Studios and they they had a studio and said, don't you want to come in here? My gut instinct said, no, don't go there because the guy's a bit of a scam artist. But unfortunately, I made the decision, yeah, let's put the studio there. So we, we recorded there and we did the whole album. But one of the engineers that had worked there had wired it up slightly incorrectly. So by the time we played the masters up in Joburg to True Tone, who were interested in it, we discovered there was a technical problem that quite a lot of the tracks were out of phase. So it would have to be remixed again. That was a nightmare. Anyway, I went to Audio Arts. I had to remix the whole album off a four-track uh, Ampex machine. I had to mix it in two hours with really bad echo. Wow. and I was really unhappy with that. Was it a concept record, Genesis? Yeah, it was, definitely. Um, I was kind of reading various religious scripts, and I was quite into reading the Bible just purely because I read a hell of a lot of stuff. And I found it I found it interesting, the dichotomy between like the Old Testament and the New Testament and the God of wrath and the God of forgiveness and all that kind of stuff. And I, I sort of thought you've got to read between the lines with this stuff and not take it literally, you know, look at what's going on. So that's where the ideas came from. And then Mike threw in a couple of ideas. And we had a guy called Tommy McClelland, who was a friend of uh, ours. He did the cover. He was an amazing artist. He said, oh, I've got this great idea. We'll have the band as kind of <laughs> Michelangelo vibe. So he did a painting, which became the cover. It was a pity because I think had it been technically perfect, it would have been a much better record. Being a producer yourself, you would have been ultra picky about what it eventually sounded like. When I heard it the other day, again, you know, getting ready for this uh, this podcast, I mean, it just still sounds amazing. I mean, Stone Man is such a great track. Yeah, that was Bruce Gordon. Uh, he was a amazing guitar player and vocalist he, he we kind of met the most crazy people along the path you know people would <laughs> arrive and sort of come in and say can i play or would you like to hear me? and we we just find amazing musicians who would join us for a couple of years or a couple of months and then wander off you kind of continued the sort of prog rock thing with songs like Avenue, which I thought yeah. was, I still think it sounds amazing. Were you playing all of this live? Yeah, we were. But we also did a lot of covers because you know what it's like, you know, when you yeah. go and you do a gig, you can't just play your own music. You've got to do stuff people recognize. And we used to do things like I'm a Man by Chicago, you know. Love that song. Uh, yeah, uh, drum solos. And we'd, we'd 
one time it was very funny actually because we we played you know pretty much full most of the venues we played at and i remember i decided mike was doing his drum solo because he always he loved his drum solos so we all got (laughs) off the stage and went to the bar and kind of ordered a beer (laughs) (laughs) kind of left him playing after about five minutes you could hear the drum go getting a bit tired (laughs) people loved that and then we went on and carried on with the song you were making these records at that particular time. Did you own those records? I mean, were you licensing yes. them out at that point? Yeah, yeah. We The first license deal we did was actually the um, the Macaulay Workshop Inc. album because um, when we were speaking to Billy and Art, they said, look, it's a bit of an odd situation because you guys are recording it yourselves and don't you want to come and record in Joburg and we'll pay for the recording? And I was saying, no, 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 no. I mean, I was... Full of shit in those days. I, I wanted right. total control of everything. No, no, no. We want to record it in our own studio. And so they said, well, what we'll do is we'll give you a, a 15% deal where the band would get five and the, and the recording studio would get 10. So we just split that between the band members. And that's how we worked from then onward. We just worked on a, on a percentage deal that was slightly higher than the normal 5% artist deal. Well, that's kind of one of the defining factors, I think, of your career with Spaced Out is that you you licensed out. You were one of the first independent people to license rather than sign artists. Was that something you fell into or just something you felt strongly about that you wanted to own the rights to what you recorded? But we kind of fell into it in the initially because, as I said to the band, and the band all wanted me to be involved, I, I said, I don't want anyone else to record our stuff. I want to do it ourselves. So we've got as much time as we need and we don't feel pressured and there aren't guys in white coats running around going, oh, mm-hmm. this is that. And, you know, so it was, it was just became a thing after that for everything we did. It was like, no, Tully's going to record it and that's how we're doing it. Then out of the blue, 16 men on a dead man's chest. Buccaneer. Will I see you tomorrow? From the album Revisited, it is absolutely humongously massive. Start on. There's enough gold 
That must have taken you by surprise. Did you think when you wrote that song that this, this is going to be a smash? Well, it was interesting because Mike actually wrote that, and Mike wrote Chinese Junk Man as well. So he had a much more commercial ear than I did, I think. And uh, he came in one day very excited. Now he's got this song that's going to be massive. And we all listened to it and said, we'll be the judge of whether it will be massive. And I listened <laughs> to it. And, of course, he didn't have any chords or anything. He just stood there and sung the whole thing, literally uh, without any chords and everything else. And we said, okay, this is quite interesting. And I was a big fan of, of Queen, and I loved all their massive harmonies. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody mm, to me was mm. like a work of art, you know. So I said, okay, we're going to do this a la Queen style with a big harmony and multi-track. And luckily, we'd actually just got the 16-track machine up and running, so we, were, we, we had enough tracks to do it with. You know, I worked out chords with Mike, and we went through the whole thing and put it down, but certainly didn't believe it would be as big as it was. It was just like, it was an interesting song. And it was quite funny because Mike was always convinced it was huge, and uh, he had to convince David Gresham that it was going to be a hit because he sent it up to David because David was right. keen on doing something with us. And David listened to it and said, well, he doesn't really know, you know, he, he, he doesn't really know, he doesn't really feel, and he played it to various other people, Alan Goldsway, and they all said, well, I don't know, it's a bit long and it's a bit involved and it's not really commercial. And we said, no, 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 put it out, put it out. And luckily, I think Radio 5 got hold of it. They actually thrashed it. It suddenly just took off crazily. So we were very lucky with that one. It's a bit of an odd song, though. It's almost like a pop sea shanty song, if you exactly. excuse the pun. You know, yeah. It's got that kind of beginning, you know. Dead yeah. man on the you know dead man's yeah. chest. It's a kind of sing song, sea yeah. shanty, couched in a kind of a rock kind of yeah. vibe. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the really important founding of Spaced Out Sound Studios. That's where I kind of met you. Was I think at the end of eighty or the beginning of eighty one, and that's where you and I kind of started our journey together. How did Spaced Out Sound Studios come together? What was the concept behind that? The name was actually given to me by a friend of mine, Keith Matters, who went on to you know, partner with um, Spur Steak Ranches, and he, he started that whole thing with Alan Ambush. So he's now a, pretty much a mega millionaire around the world, very cool guy. He had a he said, you should call yourself Spaced Out Sound Studios. And he's also the same guy that said, well, when Robin Graham came along, incidentally, who was Crocodile wow. Harris, he came along with some songs and uh, he said, no, Robin Graham is a terrible name for a rock star. You need something like Crocodile Harris. <laughs> we thought, okay, <laughs> that's really good. And then it, it sort of went into the – it was actually – I know I'm, I'm sidestepping here towards Crocodile, but it's a funny story because what happened then was we all sat around talking shit about Crocodile Harris and why was he called Crocodile Harris? He said, oh, he was related to the legendary Trapper Bill Harris up the Nile and he, and he loved crocodiles. <laughs> and we had this whole weird fantasy shit going on about Crocodile Harris. So we wrote this kind of non-existent biography, which actually came back to haunt us when you released uh, Give Me the Good News Give in France. Give Me the Good News. Yeah, you got it released in France and they somebody got hold of this fake biography <laughs> and it went all over France. 
you know what Robin was like. He was he was a great guy, but he was pretty clueless about certain stuff. And oh, they used absolutely. To, and they used to interview him on radio, and, and this French woman, we saw one which was hilarious, going about, your grandfather was the legendary trapper Bill Harris. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> and he's having this like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, he anyway. was a he was, Rob was a, a real character. You wrote Masiva Goodnight for him, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. We wrote that in 1965, and when he came along, we thought, ah, oh, th- this will suit him. He was he was a strange guy, but an amazing singer. I mean, he had a great voice, mm. really. Mm. And yeah, we did that, and it was funny because initially uh, in the song, the chorus it actually went Masiva Goodnight and held the note all the way. And then it repeated Masiva all right in the original way we wrote it. And then when we did mm. that, he just suddenly went, Masiva, good night. And he kind of cut it off and we all <laughs> looked at each other and said, actually, that sounds a lot better. We've had that discussion before. For sometimes first takes or first demos, in fact, are yep. the ones that work. Of course, Crocodile went on to have that massive hit. Was it Jeff Coxall wrote it? Uh, give, me, yeah. uh, give me the good news. Yeah, he wrote the lyrics, yeah. And we had that massive worldwide hit with that. That was an amazing time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was funny because when they came to me with a song, uh, Crocodile played me the song, and I remember being in the studio with quite a lot of other people, and they all said, ah, that'll never get played. You know, that'll never get played on the radio. It's too political. It's too anti-war, wah, 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 et cetera. And they'd played it to quite a few people in Joburg that also turned it down and said, no, no, we can't release that. It'll be banned on the radio. And I said, oh, my God, this is the best song I've ever heard. I'm going to spend a fortune on this thing. And I went to Gabby, who was my accountant, and said, we need to spend, we need to an orchestra. And she said, you can't spend money. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and I mean, I said, no, 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 I believe in this song. That was the, one of the songs that I really was convinced was great, you know, and I thought we can do something with this. So we literally did. We spent, we got a 15-piece string section. I got it scored out. We did the whole thing. And uh Interestingly enough, I think the only place it really took off was France. Germany also did uh-huh. really well with it. Uh, but France, I think it did uh, it must yeah. be close to a million, million units. But I have to ask you this, Tal. Yes. That, th- th- this has bugged me for years. I remember when I heard it, I thought this is going to be a smash. But that piano motif at the beginning, Yeah. where's that from? I've always thought that's classic. Crocodile wrote that. He just played that whole piece. And the people were saying to me, it's too long. The in- intro's too long. Nothing happens. And I said, I don't care. You know, that was kind of the way it was done. And it just worked. And ironically, Kevin Shirley played the glockenspiel on that. <laughs> if we accept the word forever, maybe we should live together and not be scared to watch the late night news You can't use guns to build a remind Kevin Shirley when I do an interview with him as well. Yeah. So many great records came out of out, out of Spaced Out Studios. I mean, 
I met you in 79, I think it was. So let's focus on three artists out of that studio. The first, obviously, is is Falling Mirror, because that's when I think you and I sort of first crossed yeah, paths. That's right. Yeah. Um, and you sent me a cassette of Making Jim Out Boulders. with Granny <laughs> and uh, I Am the Actor. Those are, you said, I've still got that cassette, just those two tracks. Good and, grief. and you said, What do you think of this? And I listened to it. This is amazing. Then you sent me the Zen Boulders album, which I still. I yeah. mean, that, I think you know how I feel about Falling Mirror, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. No. I mean, I was quoted as saying they were trailblazers in a country at war with themselves. They were like Pink Floyd, complete with a Sid Barrett genius guy and a guitarist. And, I, and I'm sure you'll agree that any other in any other country could have been yeah. up there with Knopfler and, and Clapton. I mean, he was just an amazing guy. Knowing the personalities of the two, the two cousins, yeah. how, how did that come together? How did you become involved with the Falling Mirror Project? We were playing at the Canterbury Inn at the time and um, Alan and Neilan sometimes used to pop along and then one night Alan came to me and said, oh, we've made some demos, you know, do you want to have a listen to what we're doing? I said, okay. So during a break, we went to my car and I had a cassette play in the car and we all sat in the car and they played uh, a couple of tracks there and I, I thought to myself, wow, this stuff's really, really cool. I said, this is great. We got we got to do an album. And they were like really excited about it. So uh, that's how we started. And they, they played me, I Am The Actor, Time Is A Thief, which I thought was amazing. Mm. So what I did is I said, look, it's come in and we'll roll a quarter-inch tape. You guys sit in the studio and just record all the songs. And Neilan had this black book with all the lyrics in it. He was always incredibly upbeat and very enthusiastic, you know, mm. uh, Neilan. Alan was completely the the reverse he was always paranoid and kind of tortured guitar genius but anyway we put these down and they wanted to work with pat humphreys who is a friend from wakeford heart days when he played with um, mm. wakeford heart and i loved pat's drumming i thought it was great so i said okay i'll just play bass you know because we didn't have a bass player we'd literally come in go through the arrangement i might change a few things here and there because they tended to write a, a hell of a good minute and then it got a bit the same, the rest of it. So mm. I'd have to say, well, let's do this and shift keys or, you know, so we, we'd work on the arrangements. And we literally all just had headphones on and put them all down at once. So we'd put down the back tracks down onto 16 track at the time and then Neilan would do his vocal. And the thing about Neilan was he would do one or two takes and it would be perfect. We wouldn't want to change it, you know. And then Alan would add some harmonies. The whole thing when I was doing it was I wasn't worrying about commerciality, money, anything like that. It was just enjoying it for, for a musical point of view. That's what it was. Time is a thief Creeping up on a man With the ace in his hand And delivers him his greed Time is the tick-tock Of the clock The monster that jumps Giving vent to your shark Psychological time 
would not be such a crime Were it not for the man With the whispered rhyme Time in the mist Really does not exist Were it not for the girl With the secretary's list I think also you'd probably agree that you went beyond just being a producer. I mean, you were part of the band. I mean, you played bass, yeah. you played keyboards, uh, you did uh, backing vocals and everything. Yeah. So you're kind of intertwined with the Falling Mirror legend in that way. That first album, Zen Boulders, I remember in 79 getting it. I'd been with Weir, I think, three years at that wow. particular point and yeah. thinking this is one of the greatest records that I've ever heard. I mean, it it's lyrically yeah. full of all these twisted characters. You yeah, know? yeah. You know, Archie and Jughead and, and Granny making out with Granny. Do you remember that video of making out with Granny? Yeah, yeah, I do. That was uh, shot on Super 8 and we had no editing. But I mean, it was a really unnerving video. Neelan's expression was insane. I mean, his eyes were like, you could see the madness there. Making out with Granny for the store Take along your shotgun Take along your 12 ball Now listen shopkeeper I hope you're thinking straight You know my mind is wounded And my granny's filled with hate Now we're getting somewhere my granny's name's Marina And my name, my name's Will But I'm not William Shakespeare He wrote a lot of books Elizabethan England Has turned us into crooks Making out with granny Granny, I know your mind is flaming now. Your eyes are burning bright. But you should see me in the mornings. You should see me in the night. Now we're getting somewhere. Spacing out at last.
I mean, we did get a bit of airplay on Time is a Thief and I'm the actor, but, yeah. but generally, and good press, but people were like, what, what the, the hell, hell is this? this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think probably the most chilling song I've ever heard in my life is We Build a Big Fire. Yeah, I know. I always wanted to ask you, what is the thinking behind that drum loop? I mean, it was just, it was insane. It still yeah. is. I'm itching on the highway And I see all the cars going nowhere I'm looking at the skyline And I feel the guitars flowing through the air When we finally meet It'll be as friends Free in your heart As you were from the start You had a nice disguise You wouldn't compromise You didn't realize The people criticize Someone who really cries In the rain I'm looking for a woman Who has diamonds and spring In her hair I'm looking for the people And I know they exist, but not everywhere When we finally see that it's only a game Who'll be the one to call my name? You know we need to be feeling reality Break with society And then we hear the beat of humanity In the rain Played me that on an acoustic, and and he he'd get really intense with you know, bring your daughter, there will be a slaughter and all. This. And it was like it was like Charles Manson shit right there. And I thought, oh my god, okay, well we may as well take it to the limit. And I got Pat to just pound the beat, you know, do drums, and there were no click tracks or anything. It was all done in real time. Alan did this sort of strumming this twelve string guitar, and we put backwards effects on it and. All manner of weird stuff, and we just we just made it quite crazy, basically. And then it goes into the sweet little refrain of "All the children want to be a part of you, a part of me." Now, wow, wow, wow. 
thing about Falling Mirror, I mean, knowing the history of Neilan and Alan and the struggles they had, um, I think emotionally and, and, and mentally, how, how difficult was it for you as a producer to kind of control and guide that? And was that a difficult thing? Were they hard to keep focused? Not at all. In fact, in the studio, they were both incredibly compliant and focused they never argued with me about anything, literally. They, they mm. were, you know, what do you think? And I'd say, well, let's do this, let's do that. And there was never – it was a, a pleasure, actually, to produce and to work with them because they were so enthusiastic when they were working. It was like they lived for that. You know, they lived for recording their music. That was an amazing thing about them. It seemed that it, it kind of – you know, from that period to 79 through to, through to 81. I mean, it was just album, album, album. There wasn't a live show no. at that particular point for, for whatever reason. I can't do I think Alan had stage fright or, yeah. or something like that. I think I saw them once and that was just a little bit later. You know, from our point of view at Weir, we had put out three albums with literally no return, yes. if you know what I mean. And I yeah. remember Derek Hannon saying, why are you continuing with this band? And I was going, because yeah. like, they're brilliant. Yeah. For me, they, they and I've said this openly many, many times in interviews, is when people say to me, well, who's your favorite South African artist? I always say Falling Mirror, because yeah. they're the yeah. one that I keep returning to. But then five years later, there was a gap between the Fantasy Kid, the third album, and the fourth album in 86. What happened in that five years? Well, I think they did a couple of live gigs. They got together with various musicians mm. and played at the Brass Bell and did stuff like that. Yeah, I but, saw that, um, yeah. There, there was nothing really happening from that side, and I'd already explained to them, you know, there's no money here. This is all just Benji's generosity that he's able to do this because he's not making anything <laughs> out of this. And uh, so they understood that and off they went. And literally, I think it was, as you say, five years later, 
they sort of came into the studio and said, oh, we want to make a record. And, and Neilan has got this concept thing because he's had this weird interaction with this girl from the chemist shop. And it was it, it sounded so incredibly bizarre. I thought, okay, I've got to hear what this is about. And that was Johnny Calls the Chemist. Yeah. Which produced a freak hit single. I mean, that track went to number one on Radio 5. It went to number one on 702. Yeah. Uh, it sounds Dylan-esque. In a yeah, way, completely. But how did that song come together? They first played it to me, and I thought to myself, I like the idea, but it's so bloody monotonous. He says Johnny calls the chemist like 400 times in the song. <laughs> and so I said to them, their first minute was great, but then it got really boring. I said, look, I think what we should do is just change keys and put interesting shifts and registers in here. And Alan was all for that. I mean, he said, yeah, what do you think? So we'd kind of sit with acoustic guitars and work out shifts and change and and just lift it and make it gain and get sort of forward momentum in it as the story unfolded of old Johnny and, and you know, <laughs> the chemist girl. And I think it, it, it hit such a chord because most people associated it with drug guys, you know, like, uh, I need a fix, let me call the chemist. And uh, mm-hmm. And yet it was being played merrily all over Radio 5. And everywhere. It took me by surprise, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think it would be so big. Johnny calls the chemist, but the chemist doesn't come. Her mind is in the twilight, and Johnny hears the hum. He wonders if she'll hear him. In a night that's full of sound It could be that she loves him But the love is underground Johnny calls the chemist Johnny calls the chemist Johnny calls the chemist But the chemist doesn't come He shoots a mental arrow From the bow of his mind through her consciousness He wonders what he'll find She's moving to her lover As he stretches on the bed And pulling back the cover Thinks of Johnny Boy instead Johnny calls the chemist Johnny calls the chemist Johnny calls the chemist But the chemist doesn't come Couched in pop, but it's a darkly obsessive song. Yeah. That was a real obsession that he had with that girl in, was it the Weinberg chemist? Yeah, Weinberg Pharmacy, yeah, Colette, Wein- her name Weinberg was. Pharm- 
I mean, could you imagine being stalked by Neelan? No, I've had my own experiences with Neelan, but, you know, uh, bless him. The band went on. They did They did a couple of CD-only things. They did Hammerhead Hotel and yes. they did Special Agent Duck. Yes. Uh, and then there was a whole lull where I think those Falling Water fans out there probably thought, well, that was it. And then all of a sudden... Um, it started to come together again. I mean, Sam Hendricks has started doing a documentary on them. I think yeah. it was probably it was probably influenced by the success of Waiting for Sugar Man. Yeah, um, yeah. But started doing a documentary on the band. They started recording with you again. That's right. Um, yeah. And um, they did the live show. Remember, we had that big live show um, yes, in, the in Cape Town, and it looked like. And I, I was hopeful that finally people would get this band. Yeah, yeah. And just how brilliant they were. And then I think you were recording Alan and and yeah tell us what happened that day well we were we were recording uh, vocals and he he was complaining that he wasn't feeling great and uh, you know we said that's fine just relax rest but he'd gone in and done some vocals and Neilan was then going to sing some stuff and Alan was just strumming on a guitar literally and I had my head down behind the computer and working and the next minute just heard the guitar hit the ground and that was it it was like gone you know and we didn't know wow. what happened. And Neilan said, oh, he's fainted. And luckily we had a guy who'd had paramedic experience there. And he sort of lift, lifted him up and checked him, put his head under a pillow and said, no, no, we got to call the, we got to call the paramedics. Something's not good here. But, you know, he literally died of a heart attack while playing the guitar. Wow. Incredible. I have those tracks which you kindly sent to me. I think Under a Tree is one of the, the best songs they ever wrote. Well, it came from personal experience because literally he was living under a tree in uh, someone's backyard. I walk in the streets, I walk around town. Under a tree 
what a great band. If you've never heard Falling Mirror, you can go and check them out on Spotify or iTunes or any of the digital or streaming platforms. You will not be disappointed. Let's move on to perhaps your biggest success in South Africa, Leslie Ray Dowling. I mean, arguably the most successful female pop artist of the 80s. I mean, she was everywhere, right? I mean, she scooped Sari Awards, Scotty Awards, Sama Awards, possesses the most unique voice, as good as Joni Mitchell and Tori Amos, but came, I think, from a different space, an era almost, again, I use that word medieval when I listen to stuff like The Raven. How did you meet Leslie? Well, she'd come in with a couple of guys uh, in a band sort of earlier on and they were playing their own material and she was singing and I was particularly struck by her voice. Also, she was kind of low-key. She didn't uh, push herself at all, but uh, there was something about her, like an aura, and I thought, wow, she's pretty great. But I was going to America with some material uh, from some other artists and I said, when I come back from America, I'd like to you know, look at your stuff and see what you got. When we came back, I'd actually just built the 24-track machine, which was great because we were going to need it for her stuff, and she played me the Spaniard. I think that was the first track she played me, and I thought, mm. okay, cool, this is great. We're going to do an album. I'm some day, Thursday morning, I chance to meet a Spaniard With eyes so dark and lips so red and words so cool stages she was very open to everything she would do whatever you wanted you know you say look we need to change this or we need to do that or i'm going to do that when i approach production with a band or people i always try and get a you know at the beginning i say look this is how it's going to be i need to have full control i need to have say over it you can obviously you can have ideas and if i think they're good i'll go with them otherwise i won't because to my mind you can't have a band trying to produce itself with a producer fighting, it just never works. You've got to have one mm. guiding principle and it's either going to be good or it's going to be shit. You know, that's just the way it mm. is. She was fine with that. And what she would do is she would come in with a click track and we'd put down the songs and she'd put down a guide vocal and a piano and then off she'd go. And I'd work on the back track. I'd do drums, I'd do bass, I'd do keyboards, you know, the way I felt the song should be. And that's how we did that album. We sent that directly to you, didn't we? You were the first people. Yeah, I think you had said to me, if I recall correctly, you had said to me you had bounced it off various people in the industry and you got a no-no. 
If you listen to The Spaniard, which I think is deeply ingrained in South African music DNA, yeah. I mean, you can just hear that straight away on radio or wherever, and you go, oh, my God, yeah. you know, that is something else. Yeah. I remember you sending it to me, and I heard The Spaniard, and I, to say that my jaw dropped is probably <laughs> an understatement. I'd never heard a singer like that in my life. Yeah. You know, I was a rock guy. I mean, you know sure. that. I mean, yeah. you know, singer-songwriters were not really my, my forte. But with the Spaniard, I mean, there was just something there amazing. And then the other songs, you know, Morocco, yeah. The Raven, which you shot a beautiful video of. Yeah. Uh, also one of those intense videos. You came to perch upon my windowsill Your wings soar, no high-flying anymore, my raven High as myself in tears, have you flown before? No answer did you hear, hear me I know that you want your food, but do you want the feed of Mr. Grain? Long dark way, but do you want for light or just a flame? I do not pity you, this moon will heal myself. I am lost. Do you want me? Or can't you fly from my window of a pain? Now the blood has flown from your mind You were strong, you can fly long ways, my raven I know that you came for food But now your hunger still was left to do The cold is past, all cracks are white And the future's bright For one as free as you were you surprised at the success? I was. No, I was. Um, the thing was that I'd, I, that's why I wrote Grips of Emotion because um, the, the big hit at the moment was the uh, – it was a sort of a rocky version of female singer Joan Armatrading. She did that track with Anton Fig playing drums, uh, Me, Myself, right. I. And I loved right. that track. And so I thought, wow, you know, maybe Leslie could do something like that. And um, so that's why I wrote Grips of Emotion, which she – Basically hated, but she did it under protest. <laughs> but yeah. uh, that also, that sort of launched her into the, the rock area and then everybody discovered her after that. Wow. I mean, it was wildfire. I mean, she, I think within a period of months, was everywhere. I mean, she yeah. she was on every every television show, uh, every magazine. And in the beginning, she kind of rode it yeah. very, very well, you know. Yeah. Wearing the white, what looked like a wedding dress, and you know, being it. this yeah. this person, and and she seemed to do that live. There was a problem. Yeah, there always was. And, unfortunately, and there always was a problem with her live. I mean, yeah. there's a the famous Sun City gig and everything. Why do you think she was so reluctant to play live? I think the problem was that you know she was carried by a lot of the backtrack work that we'd done on the record, so she could sing and play the piano and then all the rest of the stuff was kind of added in afterwards to amplify it and I think it, it was it made it bigger than she was so when she went in live with other musicians and that she felt 
a kind of uh, not confident. She wasn't confident she could mm. deliver. And I think that was the big problem. She always had that. She was also very highly strung and very complex individual emotionally. Between you and Patty and myself, I mean, we worked very, very hard on her career. We did, yeah. You literally went, you know, after the success of that first album, you went straight back into the studio uh, the following year and you did Unravished Brides. Yep. Again, this mixture of these ballads, these intense songs, and then uh, things like I'm a Woman. Yeah. Were you involved in writing I'm a yeah. Woman? Yeah, I wrote that. I because, thought so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to get it something. It has touch. Yeah, we were trying to get something for air, which would have airtime. Because her stuff was so off the wall, you know, it wasn't mm. readily commercial, yeah, so. She was good at ballads. I mean, things yes. like Falling Angel on Irish Brides is absolutely brilliant. I sit here in my room alone In my dressing gown Sunday morning comes along With its old familiar sounds Church bells call us all to pray Have I gone to find this way? Fallen angel, fallen angel, fallen angel in the night, can't fly home. Somehow all this morning light shines heavy on my head. I'm so proud to be the girl with the to turn your head home. Mama, babe, don't fall to shame, oh baby You're gonna lose your name Fallen angel Fallen angel Fallen angel in the night I can't fly home Tried so hard for so long Do I wear a starry crown? I want an angel falls She falls all alone Down, down Mama's gone, now I'm alone There was a man or two ago oh, Who knows Sure enough, these tired wings Have almost lost their gloss Shiny rock keeps shining And far down the road For trying with that success that she had on on the first album and, and certainly on the second album, uh, there, there seemed to be cracks kind of appearing in you know her wanting to be a star and not wanting to be a star. Yeah, I mean already there was that kind of she, she there was a pullback from her, and that was evident. I think later on, maybe around about the time split. Yeah. And Split is quite a, a good title for that record because and the cover was was also a great great yes. cover because you had you had the Lesue darling of old, the piano playing girl in the quaint dress and the hair and everything. And then on the other side this Vixen, this Vamp. Yeah. And that mixture of new wave songs and introverted story songs like Warlords and yeah. nineteen seventeen. Yeah. And I remember it was a hard record uh, because radio was kind of like, Wow, what you know? What what's next now? Yeah. Did you feel pressure to write and produce radio singles for her? I mean, did you feel that that's what she needed? Unfortunately, you know, the stuff was so off the wall and uncommercial, which I loved. But 
you had to get mm. some kind of publicity. And I mean, for you guys putting records out, you know, you can only go so far. I mean, you, you did the mirror with love for, for so long, but you need to make some kind of commercial situation. And that was the reason why I was trying to get stuff for radio play so that people would, would know about it and listen to it and that kind of thing. Certainly on when the night comes, you seem to have backed away a little bit there. Let me comfort you. Let me comfort you. When people get you down and there's no peace to be found, let me comfort you. Let me be your strength. Let me be your strength. When you're weary and That was produced by Jonathan Butler and Kevin Shirley did that because uh, right. Paddy said to me, we want to do a new arm. I said, well, look, why don't you, you know, use somebody like Jonathan who was signed to Paddy, do something different. Cause I said, I'm, I'm kind of mm. all, I'm all maxed out on this project. Yeah. I've, I've got nothing more to give here. So they, they did that album, which went in a more, a different direction. It wasn't no, uh, kind of blue eyed soul. Kind yeah. Of- yeah, Sound. I um I mixed the album, but I think um th- it was all recorded by Kevin and Jonathan did the production on that. So I just came in at the end and helped with a bit of the mixing and mixed the album. There were some great songs on there as well. I mean, you know, Innocent Child. Yeah, Living Without Conversation was brilliant. Yeah. And if I should come late tonight, don't worry. And if I don't come home at all, don't cry. Because baby, you know that I don't have... Oh, 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 oh. 
walked away from it. I I sort of walked away from it because it was, a, yeah. I think, a seven-year gap before yeah. she came back and did another album and, you know, which Unbounded Waters, which won awards and everything and, and then a couple of more albums. But she's eased away from it. She's, she's, not, yeah. she's not doing anything yeah, anymore. Yeah, she didn't um, – I think it was a novelty for her, but when it came down to the nitty-gritty, she didn't need the money. You know, she was married to a very wealthy guy. They have farms and, you know, they didn't need it. So the hunger wasn't there to go and sign overseas contracts, which were pretty hectic. Uh, so she just yeah. said, no, nah, not going to do that. And, I mean, you can't really blame her when you look at the way some stars have ended up once I've been through that whole route. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, Remain's probably one of the greatest singers to come out of this country. Definitely. All tied up, living in the suburbs. He's got a wife and sweet children Pip is three and doing well at play school Wayne is two and stays home with mommy's help Up to the next living in the suburbs He's got a bond on his life and sure friends Manicured long pool in the garden Keeps Wayne and Pip happy out of mommy's head The third one I want to talk about is the one I think we both love because it's so damn quirky, and that's that's Nikki Daly. Oh yeah, um, living living in the suburbs, which is a very. I listened to it this morning actually on on the way to the studio. It is so off the wall, Tully. Completely, it's like the oral uh, equivalent of Picasso. Yes, <laughs> you know, couldn't agree more. Very unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> very unsettling songs. I mean, strange time signatures. Yeah. The production is amazing. You've got dogs barking, you've got yeah. typewriters and doorbells. Yeah. And lyrics about the hyperama and yeah. water pools. I know. They remind me a lot of, he reminds me a lot of Sparks. Do you remember the American band Sparks? Yes, very much so. 
You seem to throw out the rule book on how to make an album with that. We did, totally did. Because you must remember, Nicky is an incredible artist and he's an incredible illustrator, never mind his musical ability. You know, he, he had several very, very successful uh, children's books where he'd kind of write them and do the illustrations. He's a genius. He's, he's like really one of the most amazing guys I ever worked with. And uh, that was one of the times when I basically said, Okay, what do you want to do? Not what, what do I want to do? And he would right. come in and say, I want this kind of thing here and I want a computery voice for this track. I want, I'm, I'm, and he'd paint me this vision of, of stuff. And, um, I had this keyboard, which was called a Synergy. And there were only, I think, a hundred ever made. And I, God knows why, but I'd managed to get my hands on one. And he loved this keyboard because all the sounds were really different and weird. And he said, okay, I'm going to use this on everything. So that's what we did. So, you know, he, his, his thoughts were just, as you say, off the wall. He would do everything instinctively that I thought was completely wrong and it would sound amazing. So I left most But it does sound amazing. Yeah. Uh, but then I remember you sending it to me and I do remember thinking, what is this? Yeah. But then there was something about is it an ism or is it art? Yeah. And lo and behold, that became the a most hit. uncommercial yeah. album that you made yeah. has a huge hit. Broadway, Wookie, Wookie, is jazzy. But is it? 
Yeah, yeah that was amazing. And also the video for that, you know, he basically oh, he basically said to me, I want to go and shoot a video. I had a, a U-Matic um, set up. We could do our own editing. So he, he got hold of a friend that had an art gallery. He got hold of friends that could do paintings. And he just set the whole thing up and he storyboarded the whole thing. And he said, okay, this is how we start. There's this shot. There's this shot. So he, he was just so completely organized on everything. And I just said, right, cool. Tell me what you want to do and I'll shoot it and we'll edit it. And that's, a, that's how we did the track. In terms of South African music collectors, yeah. I mean, that album is highly prized. I can imagine. Um, maybe because there's so few around because yeah. we didn't sell very many no. of it. When you hear it, I mean, it just jump, it just jumps off the radio dial at you. It does. It's just so different. And, 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 you know, one could argue and say, well, you know, it sounds dated and everything. I don't think it does. I think it's just so unusual. Yeah, it's, timeless. It still sounds all – yeah, it is a timeless thing. Yeah. You produce many other records, and we, we could probably spend another five hours talking about all the stuff that you've done. Are you still producing at the moment? What's happened at the moment is that I'm working with Gordon Mackay, who was in Makati Workshop. He joined us in 2015 or 2014. And we're okay. working on, we've literally gone back to the 70s and we're doing a lot of progressive music, uh, Makali Mackay. We did an album called The Unicorns Are Screaming, which uh, you know quite a few people enjoyed, which was fun for us. Talk about time signatures and concept records, those sort of things. It's, it's, it's kind of much more interesting as a musician to play in, you know, when you're not in 4-4 four, four and you're having to, to concentrate a bit like 7-4 and that kind of thing and do interesting mm. stuff that's not tied to anything commercial. And so we had a lot of fun with that. We've just now completed a new album, which is called The Garden of the Snake. That'll be coming out in August, also on the usual platforms of Spotify, etc., that's uh, that's been an amazing experience to do that because Gordon, I mean, my my jaw drops every time we'd work across. I would send him a track, and he would say, "Okay, I'm working on it," and he'd send it back to me all the separates of his keyboard parts, and I'd mix them. Everything he did was just like so amazing; it would lift the song for me, like from being kind of average to being amazing. So I'm in awe of what he does. I think is incredible. So you're doing an arts for arts sake, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just that. And it's, um, I've always loved Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Jethro Tull, those bands. So it's a, it's a real hawk back to that. I use a lot of analog gear, tape recorders, valve equipment, that kind of stuff to record on. And then the other thing I did was a 60s folk uh, project called Jasper's Acolytes. We went and did like 60s folk songs and gave it a bit of a lift. And that's also been fun to do because that's been like harmony, uh, acoustic guitars, you know, keeping it kind of organic. So Spaced Out Sounds as a studio, you closed the studio, right? Yeah, I sold it in 2014, yeah. But now you've got yourself a new career, which is Tull Microphones. Tell me how that started. Well, that's also an interesting story. You know, Kevin Shirley, of course, who worked for me, was uh, yeah. producing with Joe Bonamassa and did all the bands. And um, my nephew James went over to the UK several years ago, and he's done incredibly well, front of house engineer for Backstreet Boys at the moment. And he was working with NXS, and he was working with Kevin, with Joe Bonamassa in his studio quite a, in 2012, I think it was. James was doing the sound front of house for Journey at the time. And he said to me, because I was experimenting with microphones and he knew about it, he said, why don't you try and make me a nice guitar mic that I can use, uh, you know, for journey because I'm having to use three mics per amplifier and having to blend them every time. 
So I said, oh, well, what are the mics you're using? So he, he gave me the names of them, and I thought, okay. So I managed to get hold of them, and I strapped them together, and I recorded the response of those mics just into a, a graph and had a look at what they were doing. And then I worked on a single dynamic to give me the same kind of response. And after I got really close, I sent a mic to him, and Kevin stuck it on Joe Bonamassa's amp, and they all said, oh, this is great. Send us a couple more. So uh, it was a situation of like sending Kevin mics for about three months, you know, another one, another one, and he'd give them to Aerosmith, go to Journey, go and all the guys. And eventually I thought, hang on a minute, <laughs> we could actually turn this into some kind of a business now, you know. That's how the guitar mic started, called the, the G12. God knows why I called it that, but that was what the name was. And uh, who, who's using it at the moment besides Bonamassa? Everybody. I mean, Billy Duffy, The Cult, uh, Paul McCartney's bands, guys using him. Uh, Iron Maiden's album were recorded with him. Bob Rock, he basically, okay. you know, Bob Rock was uh, done a lot of big bands, and he wrote to us and said he got two mics because Joe Bonamassa recommended And everywhere Bob Rock went, the studio would then send us a letter saying, hey, we just recorded with Bob Rock using your G12s. We'd like to order two for the studio. So we got like 12 different orders out of Bob Rock. So we sent him a couple of extra wow. mics and said, hey, Bob, thanks for the, the free kind of order. But it was funny because this business, most business, you start from the bottom and you work your way up. We started from the top with people from all the top bands that were using it. Neil, Sean, kind of, you know, Joe Bonamassa, um, all these guys, Billy Duffy and – these are the guys we were dealing with. They were buying the mics, you know, and all thanks to Kevin, really, because he was using them and he, he loved them. And people would say, what's that and how's that going? And, and then we did a similar thing with a, a U47 microphone, which is a big studio mic, big Neumann, and uh, I'm, I managed to do a clone of that called the F47, which has become incredibly popular as well. And ironically, selling best in Germany, which is the home of Neumann, so... I'm kind of thrilled about that. It was a whole new career. That's amazing. I mean, that you, you're just continuing. And I suppose that's, if, you, if one looks back at, at your career, that's been your hallmark is you've just kept moving, yeah. moving, moving, moving and changing. Finally, tell, when you look back on that career of yours, what do you feel personally has been your biggest achievement and, and the one that you're the most proud of? I think I have to say that uh, the Macaulay Mackay stuff that I've just done with uh, Gordon, that's been the most fulfilling because, to be honest with you, every time I've ever heard anything I'd done afterwards, I'd always had slight regrets like, oh, I wish I'd done that or I wish I'd done this, you know, no matter with, mm. whether it was successful or not. The new material, I mean, first time in my life I'm happy with it. I can listen to it even three, four weeks later and, and be happy with it and say, wow, that is that is amazing, you know, so – I guess that's the latest stuff that I've been doing, which is interesting because it's literally a throwback to the 70s music. Well, you've heard it. Macaulay Mackay, you'll be able to get on all of the streaming platforms. Tali Macaulay, wow. What a pleasure to sit and chat with you about your career. Having worked with you very closely, I've always been incredibly honored. Thank you so much, Tali. It's a great pleasure, Benji, and thanks for all the work you've contributed as well. Excerpts from Macaulay Workshop, Lacey Ray Dowling, Falling Mirror, Crocodile Harris and Nikki Daly, all courtesy of Spaced Out Sounds Publishing and Songwrites Publishing. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts. 